Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm here with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Met. In recent times, our fascination with the cosmos has reached new heights. From groundbreaking research missions to the emergence of interstellar consumerism, our universe has transformed into a thriving hub of exploration and innovation. In this episode, we're privileged to sit down with two distinguished experts, Avi Loeb, a professor at Harvard University, the former chair of the astronomy department and the founder of the university's Black Hole Initiative, and Kelly Kiedis Ogborn, the VP of Space Commerce and Entrepreneurship at the Space Foundation. Together, we'll delve into the fascinating realm of interstellar minerals, contemplate how AI is unlocking the secrets of the cosmos, and dissect the economic dynamics surrounding space exploration. Stay tuned for an out-of-this-world conversation right here on the Harvard Data Science Review. Avi, you know, space and those that might inhabit it have become a very hot topic of late, to say the least. And I know, Avi, that you have had some major findings released just in the past couple of weeks. So could you maybe start by sort of in in lay language telling us what these findings are and what they might mean for us as humans? Well, thanks for having me. Um, most of my career was... Uh, theory. I um, was fascinated by ideas about what reality might be like. But in uh, recent years, I uh, became fascinated by data. And, uh, you know, it may be a sign of age uh, to care more about what the real universe is rather than what it could have been. So coming back to your question, uh, a few weeks ago, we um, posted a paper, scientific paper, detailing the results from the analysis of materials from the first object that came from outside the solar system, the first recognized interstellar meteor that uh, the U.S. government satellites uh, detected back on January 8th, 2014. And um, the satellites noticed the fireball that uh, resulted from the friction of this object with air. Uh, it generated a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy. And the, the unusual thing about this meteor, there are many of them all the time, but this one was moving really fast. In fact, not only it was moving faster than needed to escape from the solar system, but even outside the solar system, it was moving faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the sun uh, relative to the local frame of the galaxy. So it was a fast mover. And moreover, it uh, was able to maintain its integrity up to very high stresses, higher than all 272 space rocks that were uh, cataloged by NASA over the past decade. And that made it an outlier. And so, uh, I decided to lead an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to retrieve materials from this uh, meteor. And we expected there to be molten droplets from the surface of the object when it was exposed to the fireball. The size of those droplets were the size of a grain of sand, roughly millimeter or less. And uh, the ocean depth is more than a mile. So it sounded like an impossible mission to find millimeter-sized droplets at the depth of more than a mile across a region of seven miles. But we made it. 
we found uh, 700 such uh, droplets altogether. And uh, out of them, we analyzed 57 so far. And, and we found an excess of spherules along the meteor path. These are the molten droplets. We, we, professionally, we call them spherules because they are very distinct from the background sand. They look like uh, metallic marbles. Uh, and moreover, we found a special type of spherules in those high yield regions. Um, and uh, those spherules had a composition that was never seen before in the solar system with elements like uh, beryllium, lanthanum, uranium, enhanced by factors of hundreds up to a thousand relative to the standard solar system composition. Just to explain, the solar system as a whole uh, formed out of a cloud of gas that was enriched by an exploding star a long time ago. And the material that made the solar system had the same composition uh, because it was well mixed. But um, what we found is uh, enhancements in some elements, heavy elements, that goes way beyond solar system abundances. Uranium was nearly a thousand times more abundant. So that demonstrated that uh, this material came from outside the solar system because it doesn't match anything you find on Earth or the Moon or Mars or asteroids. And um, it's a completely independent uh, verification that this object came from outside the solar system. Aside from its speed, we found the material that uh, was never seen in the scientific literature from objects in the solar system. Uh, of course, the, the key question is, uh, is this a natural object or maybe technological in origin? Right. And to figure this out, we really need to go back and look for a big piece of this object. And that's what we plan to do next with a different uh, machinery, different tools. Uh, and uh, in the last class of the spring semester, I asked uh, my uh, students, um, if we find a technological gadgets, gadget with buttons on it, should we press a button? And uh, half of them said, uh, no way, don't do that. It will affect all of us. And the second half of the class said, please do. We are very curious to see what would happen. And then one of the students said, and what would you actually do, Professor Loeb? And I said, I would bring it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it. I guess that's that same idea as um, when we send out messages into outer space since, you know, half the, half the population says, don't send it. You know, I I don't want to I don't want to send messages to the aliens that might be out there, and the other half of people say, send those Beatles songs away. I want them to know exactly where we are. Well, uh, I would argue in favor of sending uh, current music. I don't like the Beatles so much, but uh, <laughs> that's a that's a big statement, Avi. You're gonna have a lot of people upset uh, about that one. No, that will offend half of the population. You know, <laughs> the thing um, you know, even Stephen Hawking said, uh, let's not trans transmit anything out because they might uh, come back. And, you know, um, we no all know what happened in, in the Americas when uh, the Europeans arrived and all the indigenous tribes disappeared. And I don't see it that way. I uh, imagine it being similar to, you know, a colony of ants on the pavement looking at a biker that passes by. I mean, the biker doesn't care less about these ants. Uh, if 
if someone arrives to our doorstep, they must be more sophisticated than we are because we never arrive to their doorstep. And I think it's an opportunity for us to learn. So I think it's more to our benefit than anything else. And it might inspire us to change our priorities. As of now, we are wasting a lot of resources on fighting each other, engaging in conflicts. And uh, if we realize that we have a neighbor out there, perhaps it will be a wake-up call for us to realize we are all in the same boat as equal members of the human species. So let's work together. I loved what you just said about when you're young, you know, you believe the ideas, ideals. When you aged, you start to check the reality. And, and congratulations on your amazing uh, data collection trip. And I know you will conduct more of those. Uh, speaking of which, I want to kind of follow up a question on your new book on Interstellar provides readers with a blueprint on how space interaction happens now and in the future, you know, what, what it looks like. Can you tell us a little, little bit more about how are we already interacting with the space and what might be we headed in terms of future interaction? And particularly for a data science podcast, I'd like to know what kind of data do we have to help us to predict such a future? Right. So I think uh, I don't think imagine biological creatures visiting us because um, biology was selected by natural evolution to survive on a planet like Earth. Uh, uh, protected by the womb of a, an atmosphere. If we just um, uh, go into space, we will be uh, very vulnerable to cosmic rays uh, destroying uh, our cells. And uh, uh, the journey is also extremely long. With the spacecraft that we built so far, it would take uh, millions to billions of years. Even light takes thousands of years to cross the distances between stars. So there is no way for interstellar probes to get the guidance from the sender in real time. Uh, you know, right now we have the Perseverance rover on Mars, along with um, the Ingenuity helicopter. But these robots are managed by engineers in the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. And I call that the helicopter parenting. We are giving instructions to those how to behave, but you can't do that across interstellar distances and you need to equip your probe with a brain. And we have the solution. It's artificial intelligence and we haven't sent AI astronauts as of yet, but um, I can imagine that within a decade or two, we will start doing that. And the other civilizations that had more than one century of science and technology could have done it already. So if we ever encounter functioning devices, they will probably have an AI brain and potentially also a 3D printer that they can use uh, in order to produce uh, things out of the raw materials that they find. If they are self-replicating, for example, just like uh, dandelion seeds, you know, the uh, the seeds of dandelion fly in air and they settle anywhere on a fertile ground and, and they introduce the DNA of the dandelion to make more of the same. And biology did that and the technology might do that in the future. So uh, that's the way I imagine an encounter with a functional device. But of course, there could be a lot of objects out there that are just space trash. They kept accumulating over time, like plastics in the ocean. Uh, you know that by 2050, there will be more mass in plastics in the oceans than fish. Uh, 
So if you go to a fish restaurant, you will probably eat some plastic. Uh, and uh, we have to, of course, keep in mind that most stars formed billions of years before the sun, and it takes less than a billion years to traverse the Milky Way galaxy uh, with uh, chemical rockets of the type that we used. So uh, there was plenty of time for uh, space trash from other civilizations to reach us. Uh, it, it remains gravitationally bound to the Milky Way. And for 70 years, we've been looking for radio signals. That's the original uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI. And uh, unfortunately, it's just like waiting for a phone call. Uh, you need the counterpart to be active. Uh, and uh, it's possible that civilizations come and go. And the, the radio transmission phase lasts very short amount of time. And you don't have a good chance of being at the right time to listen to it. On the other hand, you know, if these uh, packages keep accumulating in space, we might find one in our backyard. And uh, that's the approach that I take. Uh, it was made possible only over the past decade when we discovered the first interstellar objects like this meteor and then Oumuamua in 2017, the size of a football field that didn't collide with Earth, but looked very weird. Unlike the rocks that we are familiar with, it was flat in its shape, was pushed away from the sun by some uh, mysterious force without showing any cometary evaporation. So that could be space trash, like the meteor colliding with Earth uh, without uh, it being functional. I think we have to talk about sort of other ways that we interact with space too. It brings it brings forth those questions when you're talking about this first sort of direction. And Kelly, you know, as a space economy strategist, what are the ways that we're financially interacting with space? You know, using space as a as a potential whole new level of commerce. What is what does that sort of space economic climate look like as of right now? Yeah, Liberty, you're right. It's it's interesting when you engage with space because there are so many ways that we do it. And so as Avi mentioned, there's this whole host of um, entities and people that are looking at the exploration, expanse and other beings side. I am a lot more um, closer to Earth, you know, 62 miles to be exact. When we cross the Kármán line, uh, really looking at the, the business interactions of space and how people are really pushing to expand the space economy and um, commerce activities in low Earth orbit. And I would say to, to really understand what's going on, uh, there's really three ways to frame it. So the first is understanding what's creating the climate of opportunity. The second is really what is the climate. And the third is the are the market drivers. And so what's interesting about the climate um, is that we are really entering this age where the prospect of space is no longer just for companies led by tech experts or space enthusiasts. And so every day there are all of these disparate industries that are realizing that there is an opportunity and an entry point. And we've seen the global space ecosystem um, expand to create new channels for commerce and for business to be done. And every day we're seeing new products, services, and approaches that are really redefining critical infrastructure, but also creating a lot more jobs for people on Earth. And today, than about a decade ago, the space economy is about 55% higher and the parameters have expanded, which is the most interesting to me. So we're starting to see a diversification of players, of investment and of funding interest. And really over the past 15 years, 
a lot of private investment in space has diversified by venture and by orbit. So traditionally, we would see a lot of investment in medium Earth orbit and geostationary orbit because that's where a lot of the satellites were held. But we're now starting to see a lot more investment and interest in low Earth orbit, um, which really signals a lot of opportunity for expanse of critical infrastructure for things like commercial space stations and the cislunar economy, um, but also suborbital ventures and then um, outposts that they plan to do to go deeper into space for Mars and beyond. And what's also really aiding this shift is how we are changing from the Apollo era to the era of Artemis is really how I like to catalog it. So when the space industry started, um, you know, it grew out of Apollo, a space race between the United States and the Russians. And um, all of our space activity was really vertically integrated. So you had a national priority, national funding, and then you had the contractors and the companies really funneled under. Now we are moving into an era where we are going back to the moon as a um, international collaborative point. And so it is forcing um, private sector and the government to interact in very different ways. And so you have private taking a lot of the lead in terms of the capabilities necessary, but the government really allowing us to um, create a strategy and some sort of strategic support. And then if you wanted to actually quantify it, which of course we do on this podcast, the Space Foundation every year puts out a space economy number to really look at what are we cataloging it as now. So you will see a variance in a lot of you know, financial houses that will say that the space economy is going to be worth anywhere from one to four trillion dollars by the year 2040. But what does that actually mean? And so we quantified the space economy number for um, 2022 at five hundred and forty six billion dollars. And what that makes up is 22% of government spending and 78% of commercial revenue, which is really broken across 11 subsectors, which I can touch upon in a second. Um, it was an 8% increase from the year before. So space continues to tick up. And what I think is interesting about this is um, if you think about global engagement within those numbers, there's about 80 global space programs, um, but 92 countries operating in space. And that number, I think, is the more interesting one for me because entities and countries now are realizing that they need to have a space business engagement strategy. Um, and so you'll, you're starting to see these offices that are really peeling off of trade ministries and you know departments of defense within these countries. And it may be one or two people, but they're starting to realize how they can take advantage of the industries in country to build into these opportunities. Um, and the technology that's you know, really driving it and what is actually localizing those numbers is there's really two entities. So it's looking at enabling industries and those enabled by space. So when we think about the enabling industries, we're really looking at commercial infrastructure and support industries. And so this is really like hardware and services provided by the private sector that enable things like development, launch, and the successful operations of commercial assets. So it's a lot of things that we think about, you know, it's launch, it's uh, satellite manufacturing, it's ground stations and equipment, um, and also commercial human spaceflight is one of those that is um, starting to really butt up in the sector, which gets people excited because that's um, a very optical thing that we see for space tourism. And then some of the other ones, which is actually two thirds of the economic piece are commercial space products and services. So these are really products and services that directly rely on space assets. So these are things like broadcasting, communications, um, 
Earth observations, so being able to use, you know, satellite um, data and images for things like um, natural disaster warnings and agricultural yields, and then also position navigation and timing, which gives us GPS, financial stamps, all of these really fundamental backbone elements that people don't realize come from space, um, but we interact with it every day. And so those are some of the um, some of the main ways technologically. And then the last thing I'll say, which is I think a really helpful way to think about it, is when people engage in space, there's really two main markets. So there's the space to earth market and the space to space market. So the space to earth market is goods and services produced in space for use on earth. So these are things like I mentioned, you know, telecommunications, internet infrastructure, weather data, but this is also exploiting the conditions of space for use on earth. So one of the things that we see a lot is that there is a precision um, in zero G that allows for manufacturing that can only be done on space that is not able to be done on earth. That is really, really beneficial for things like medical devices or being able to exploit um, different treatments. There was an osteoporosis treatment that was actually accelerated in space that was FDA fast-tracked because the conditions within space allowed it to be um, developed at a different pace. And so there's a lot of ways that we engage that have very earthbound applications um, that people don't realize. And then the last market is the space-to-space market. And these are goods and services produced in space for use in space. So this is a lot more um, future-oriented and exploratory. It's looking at, you know, when we get to lunar outposts, when we get to asteroid mining, when we're able to actually launch from one orbit to another, how do we create that infrastructure in space to take Earth out of the equation? So to be able to manufacture in space, refuel in space, um, mine in space, that's going to really allow that expanse um, from a commerce activity, but also a human exploration activity. Thank you, Kelly. That's very interesting about your characterization of a space to Earth and a space to space. But I assume there's also an Earth-to-space industry there. It got to be a pretty big one. There is. So one of the main elements, um, when we talk about the space opportunity, we talk about downstream and upstream. So it is a, is a two-way aspect. And um, a lot of these verticals, so when we talk about satellite manufacturing, when we talk about satellite launch, when we talk about launch, there are all of these other industries that act as the backbone to enable those those opportunities to happen. And so that is why that number of 546 billion is so massive, because when you start to peel back the onion, it isn't just astrophysicists, it isn't just satellite manufacturers, it really takes the totality of a lot of different interests necessary to sustain what we have now, but also grow into the opportunities. Right. Well, this actually uh, reminds me of a question for Avi. You know, I think that your uh, amazing trip itself uh, must be helped by, uh, you know, lots of instrument, but as well as by funding. And I know you have been uh, incredibly su- successful raising uh, funds for your research. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and particularly uh, your view in terms of how the emerging space economy can affect the future research, like funded research of your kind. I understand those uh, researches are not cheap. Right. So um, the problem with um, federal funding right now from uh, the National Science Foundation or NASA is that, um, uh, you know, it's decided by committees which are populated by mainstream scientists who are arguing that um, we shouldn't take risks, that uh, we're using taxpayers' money and therefore we should know in advance what the researchers will find. 
And that's contradictory to the spirit of discovery. And um, the question is, how can we have a better system? So for now, we don't. And as a result, I, I'm not even applying uh, because I'm doing innovative research. And uh, I get all my funding from uh, donations. You know, I'm not a particularly good fundraiser. I, I was chair of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine years, as you may remember, Xiaoli. Yes. And, uh, you know, we were seeking money for the next big telescope. And we spent a huge amount of time trying to fundraise. And you never know where it will come from. And uh, it usually doesn't come, come at all. And um, then um, I started working on this subject and I wrote my book, Extraterrestrial, and suddenly uh, multi-billionaires showed up in the porch of my home. Uh, I, I didn't do anything. <laughs> and uh, that was interesting. You know, some people said that they would have liked to be the fly on the wall because I had an amazing uh, group of people visiting me. Um, and, um, you know, it, it got to an extreme uh, situation where... Uh, it actually started with uh, the astronomy department administrator writing to me an email saying, uh, you have $200,000 in your research account. And I said, sorry, uh, can you repeat that again? I, I mean, where is that money coming from? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, if someone gives me that money, I better know who that is because I want to thank that person. That is my privilege. So she went back to the development office at Harvard and asked them for the name. And it took two days and they came back and then she told me the name. And I said, but she said, uh, you can wait a few months before contacting that person because maybe they have other uh, requests from that person. But of course, I wrote within the same day, I wrote an email to the person and that person uh, uh, asked me for a Zoom meeting the following day. And after I met with him, uh, he gave me another million. Then uh, other people showed up, and uh, soon enough, I had the money to do whatever I want. I think this is a really interesting point, Avi, that you made about how, you know, the academic argument of, you know, we don't want to waste taxpayer dollars, but they're the ones, the academics are the ones that are deciding really what the taxpayer wants rather than actually asking the taxpayer is making it really difficult for you and other people sort of doing this cutting edge research to really open up a new market, if you would say, you know, this sort of new market of looking at space. And I think, Kelly, you you in some ways have the same challenges of saying, you know, this is, I, I, to me, the idea of the space economy before I'd heard you speak about it was just this sort of crazy idea. Like, what do you mean investing in space? And so you have some of the same challenges of convincing people that this is worth investing in. Mm -hmm. So maybe, Kelly, I'll start with you. You know, what what are the 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 issues that come with trying to convince people that the space economy is worth, you know, being a new industry to invest in. And obviously sort of the same way with you um, about what those challenges are of, of this new market. Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. I think um, at a top level, I will say the space industry has an optics problem. Um, and so for all of the reasons that I mentioned before, when people engage in space and think about space, it spans a gamut. So you really have to get nuanced fairly quickly about what it is you're talking about. Um, and when you look at it from a market aspect and an economic aspect, we are not starting from scratch. And so it's really balancing this keeping this altruistic idea of where space can go and this hype of the future with really pragmatic steps to be able to develop it. 
And when you think about how we've just evolved from the space age, so this ethic of confronting the unknown with confidence and innovation really characterized the birth of the space age. Um, and at that time, it's because landing on the moon had never been tried before. And we were at that point at this limit of current technological capabilities. And so there was this shroud of an atmosphere of improbable achievement. But now, um, all of the things that we've developed, you know, while technologically impressive, are not really the gamble that they once were um, when we launched the space market. And the market itself is really differentiated with these stable subsectors that I mentioned before, like communications, you know, position navigation and timing that really add and act as anchors that allow for risk in other subsectors. And so what I think is interesting about the market that people don't realize is that there is this dynamism that allows for risk, creativity and stability to really coexist. And when you think about the trajectory of space, um, what we're really looking to do, it's kind of no different than you would set up an economic infrastructure on Earth. You have to have the infrastructure, the ecosystem, and the conditions to allow things to, to spring from it. And I always draw a parallel to the aviation and the cell phone industry as examples, primarily because both of those also started from government support and then they had this trajectory toward commercialization and mass diversification. And then they had this tendency toward capability integration. So really becoming this backbone enabler for new products, services, and industries. And so what I mean by that is that when you think about space, um, as we're talking about commercial space stations, so NASA is retiring the International Space Station by the end of 2030. And there have been four companies that have been given contracts by NASA to put up their own commercial space stations in space. Partially, they're going to be taking on the research and manufacturing done on the International Space Station. But what they're also going to be doing is allowing space for the public to, to access it, right? So there's going to be manufacturing labs. There's going to be eventually areas where you could do like a work study in space, which is kind of cool. Um, and so it's really opening the aperture for how people can engage in space, but in a steady, iterative way. And one of the things that's you know really propping this up is the understanding that this isn't going to be something that happens overnight. It's going to be gradual. And really what's allowing that are these leap ahead technologies really done by SpaceX and other companies, but also dropping the cost equation because you have to be able to reach and afford space in order to actually grow it. So with some of the developments, you know, from SpaceX's rockets in particular, they are making rockets, you know, reliable, routine, ubiquitous, cheap, um, all of the things you would need to allow routine access to space. And once that is technologically cracked, then you're going to open up a lot of other possibilities. So you can almost think of it like a roadmap. There's technological things that need to happen first. And then once that happens, you're going to unlock the next possibility. So no one's really going at it whole scale. I mean, there are a lot of dreamers in space because um, it's exciting. But when you actually start to peel the onion back, people are approaching it pretty pragmatically, but also keeping this optimistic idea um, so that funding and excitement and this human collective um, backs us up. Yeah. Um, so what I would like to add is just the perspective of science. Um, and the um, two points that I wanted to mention, um, from the scientific point of view, the question is, um, what kind of fuel can we use when uh, we start uh, having um, a lot of people on the moon, for example, or on Mars? And um, the obvious choice is water. Uh, if you break uh, the water molecule into oxygen and hydrogen, 
using an electric current uh, as a result of absorbing sunlight, uh, you can, uh, in principle, uh, use the hydrogen and oxygen for fuel. And therefore, I think, uh, similar to the oil companies here on Earth, uh, finding reservoirs of water ice on the moon and processing it, or on Mars, uh, that will become an industry that makes money. Yeah. Uh, and then um, another uh, point is that um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm really curious to know if uh, there is life anywhere uh, in the solar system aside from Earth. And there might be some forms of life that survived on Mars since uh, it lost its atmosphere and liquid water on the surface. And the best places to search for that would be those lava tubes, um, protected from temperature variations, protected from cosmic rays. Uh, and uh, the same uh, on the moon, uh, we don't expect life to have existed there, but perhaps uh, interstellar meteors crashed on the moon so we can learn about those. It's like a museum that preserves everything that uh, crashes on its surface. Uh, so there are some scientific uh, topics to be explored, uh, aside from the commercial benefit that we can imagine or national security benefits that uh, gives uh, national pride to uh, various governments. Uh, I do think that uh, there is a lot of uh, curiosity that could propel um, the future of space exploration. Yeah, and, and one thing I'll add to that, because that's a really good point, in order to actually grow what we want to grow and achieve the science maturation needs to go with the business cases. And really the reason for that is um, I have no doubt that technologically we will get to where we, we need to go. So we will have an infrastructure in low earth orbit. We will eventually have an infrastructure on the moon, but in order to grow and sustain those environments, it's that deeply human piece and it's the science piece. And we can't wait until we're there technologically to figure it out because I've waded into some conversations around, you know, space medicine and environmental assessment of these other areas. And you ask one question and you get 10 other questions from it. And so there has to be this maturity of what we're going to encounter in these areas um, so that everything can grow in tandem and there isn't a start and stop. And so it is important to have the scientific exploration along with the business case um, and not lose, lose sight of either. From a private investment, they are looking a bit more near-term, right? So a lot of the companies they invest in in space generally have to have like a five to seven year um, ROI trajectory. It's just the case. But um, there are some investors that are looking more toward those space to space, exciting asteroid mining, you know, lunar colony aspects. Um, they're, they're fewer and far between. But I think as we start to prove out the concepts, we will probably start to see more private investment. And hopefully it'll um, help match some of the government investment for that research. So I just have a one uh, final, you know, quick question. If either of you or both of you can give some very concrete example of the technology we're using to impact with space, in particular, in terms of what, that, what are the biggest market there people can invest? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I can talk a bit about that. So one of the most probably easily quantifiable markets is the proliferation of the satellite market. And um, specifically, that's moving into low Earth orbit that most people know about Starlink. Um, and there are other companies that are looking at putting constellations up in space just to help quantify that, an interesting um, statistic for the proliferation is up until 2020, there were about 2,500 satellites that operated in space. Between 2020 and 2022, that doubled to 5,000. And in the next 10 years, they think there's going to be about 100,000 satellites in space. 
So what that means from a coverage aspect, but also to your point of data, um, being able to quantify data, being able to qualify data, being able to store data is actually a really large booming sector because those satellite operators have very particular use cases for what their satellite is um, you know, intended to, to send uh, images back, but it doesn't mean they're not collecting right all the time. And so that opens up um, upstream and downstream capabilities, but also a lot of really interesting ways um, for middle people, whether it's insurers or you know, financial timestamps or other aspects within that value chain. So that is a really big entrepreneurial area that is um, really easy to quantify because I think that the satellite equation is part of our collective, um, collective narrative at this point. Yeah. Um... I think uh, much of the future is about um, data collection and um, and communication back to Earth, and um, and it could include, for example, monitoring the Earth uh, to figure out what happens to the climate uh, in a better way than we currently have. Uh, obviously, it uh, affects um, national security in terms of monitoring objects uh, above Earth and um, warning um, and providing intelligence about anywhere on the globe. But as far as I'm concerned, it's it's not just about looking down at Earth. It's also looking out away from Earth because, um, you know, I would like to know about interstellar objects. So um, the calculation is that based on a rate of uh, one such object impacting Earth, like this meteor that I described every decade, uh, that immediately leads to an estimate of a few million objects like it within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun at any given time right now. And we haven't had the sensitivity so far to find them. Uh, so just think about a few million objects, uh, roughly a meter in size, floating between the Earth and the Sun, and we can't see them because they don't reflect enough sunlight. And uh, I would be very interested if we could uh, see all of them and and, and detect those that are moving really fast that may have uh, arrived from interstellar space because they could represent space trash uh, from other civilizations. And that would be a revolution in terms of our understanding if we detect millions of objects and find a fraction of them to be interstellar space trash. So um, we always end with a magic wand question. So I will ask both of you, um, if you could wave your magic wand, if you could get the general public to truly understand any one thing about our upcoming interactions with space, what would it be? Uh, so for me, um, it would be a message um, that we should be modest because um, obviously when we look down, uh, we can um, feel very proud of ourselves, you know, about the accomplishments, especially if we narrow the field of view to our immediate vicinity, we can impress other people. But, uh, you know, that's uh, at best on the two-dimensional surface of this rock that we were born on. And if you add the third dimension of looking out, uh, it's really humbling because, uh, you know, the scale of the universe is a quadrillion times bigger than the orbit, the size of the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, 10 to the power 15. And um, that's just the region that we can see. And we know that our universe extends to at least 4,000 times farther away because uh, there is no cliff. Uh, a cliff would have introduced some uh, 
perturbations to what we see in the universe in the cosmic radiation background left from, left over from the big bang and we don't see that so uh, space is vast and uh, you know when Elon Musk says, I'm the space guy and I haven't seen any evidence for aliens. I say, you know, this is just like an ant exploring the head of a pin and making a statement about the most distant planet in the solar system. That's roughly the ratio of scales uh, between the region that Elon Musk is familiar with near Earth and the scale of the universe. So we, uh, you know, we better stay modest in our opinions and explore it. Uh, and obviously we live, you know, the longest lived uh, person uh, didn't live for more than one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe. So we're here for a short time uh, on, on a small uh, region uh, of space that we are familiar with. Uh, you know, there, there is much more real estate out there for us to explore. And it's fascinating. It's an opportunity to learn. I agree with that. And I, I think from my perspective, I would say that space touches every continent, country, community, city and citizen. And so it's really getting the general public to understand that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to engage it from a business aspect or really to benefit from it. And so as we as a society continue to invest in hard sciences and invest in an infrastructure within space, um, it is going to have direct terrestrial, direct earthbound applications, whether it's a technology that is spun out, whether it's space data for your cell phone, you know, um, or it's just a different process and procedure that's going to better an industry on Earth. It will collectively benefit all of us because we all have a heritage to space. So the more that people realize that they interact with it on a daily basis, I think makes it feel less far flung and more part of their, their, um, their daily life. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thehdsr. A special thanks to our executive producer, Rebecca McLeod, and producers Tina Toby Mack and Ariane Winfrey. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review. Everything data science and data science for everyone.